I'm Franco Terrazano. And I'm Aaron Woodruff. And this is the Canadian Taxpayers Podcast, where we're dedicated to lower taxes, less waste, and more accountable government. In this week's episode, we're going to take a deep dive into the not-so-transparent world of government transparency with our Quebec director, Renaud Brassard. And in Waste Watch, we'll be chatting with our Ontario director, Jasmine Moulton, about how you can take a tropical vacation during a pandemic, lose your job, and still walk away with a cool and easy breezy $1 million payout. Sounds like a good job if you can get it, but it's not so good if you're the taxpayer paying for it. But first, let's check in with our federal director, Aaron Woodrick, to talk about what's up with your taxes in 2021. Aaron, tell me you got some good news for us. Boy, Franco, we could all use some good news this year, I'm sure. It's been a, it's been a rough start to 2021, uh, you know, around the world. But unfortunately, I don't have any good news. Uh, on the tax front, the tech tax takeaway for taxpayers this year is you're going to be paying more tax, not less. You know, that's uh, really frustrating. And, and in some ways, it's actually surprising because I thought we were all in a pretty good agreement here that a pandemic and an economic decline like we're facing is uh, not exactly the best time to be increasing taxes and costs on families and businesses. Yeah, you would think. In fact, I haven't heard anybody come out and say that it's a good time to raise taxes. In fact, you don't have to take it from me. You can take it right from the top. Here's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau from last August uh, dismissing the possibility of tax hikes. Could this be going up then? No. Uh, The last thing Canadians need uh, is to see a raise in taxes right now. Uh, Millions of Canadians are out of work and looking for work. The economy is still uh, nowhere near uh, where we need it to be. Uh, We have work to do and we are not going to be saddling Canadians with extra costs. So you can see in spite of all those very comforting words from the Prime Minister, there are in fact a bunch of different federal tax hikes coming this year. All right. Well, there's really no fun way to do this. So uh, let's just rip off the Band-Aid here, Aaron. Just just hit us with what we're going to have to be paying. Well, first, you may want to grab a drink uh, or maybe not, uh, because the first one that's going up is alcohol taxes. Uh, They go up April 1st every year. Um, It's going to make it more expensive for you to drown your COVID sorrows. Uh, There's also a new Netflix tax that's been introduced. People watching a lot of Netflix these days. And it's actually two taxes. One is the sales tax that you're going to now pay on your subscription. The other is an additional fee that's going to be tacked on, and it may actually end up being buried in the price of a a cable subscription so that you get the privilege of paying for some government-approved content that you're never actually going to watch. Yeah, this is such classic government, hey? Like, Netflix is one of the few good things that's still happening in 2020 and now in 2021. And, of course, the government wants to come along and make that more expensive. Oh, thank you so much. Well, you know what, none of what you've said so far sounds good for taxpayers, but uh, I'm thinking that you've got some more bad news for us. Yeah, I mean, we could talk about the carbon tax, which I'm sure all our supporters are already upset about. It's going up another $10 per ton this year. So that's going to add another 2.2 cents per liter at the gas pumps. Unless, of course, you live in British Columbia, where uh, BC Premier John Horgan actually had the good sense to realize that as Justin Trudeau had said, now is not a good time to raise taxes. So he actually froze the carbon tax in British Columbia. Yeah, let's stick on carbon taxes for a second here, because, you know, just before Christmas, Trudeau announced that he is massively increasing his carbon tax by 467% by 2030. So you know what that's going to mean, right? That's going to soak a family for an extra 30 bucks every time they go up and fill up their minivans. Now, Trudeau didn't stop there. Because adding insult to injury, he announced a second carbon tax, folks. A second carbon tax, which is going to be more cost on top of his first carbon tax. 
So it's pretty clear that our supporters, you got to roll up your sleeves because we got a lot of fighting to do against Trudeau's carbon taxes here. But Aaron, any, any other nasty surprises ahead of us in 2021? Yeah, there's one other significant one I'll mention, and that's payroll taxes, as in your CPP premiums. Uh, and those are actually going to be pretty significant this year. And by that, you mean the, uh, the CPP deduction that comes off for paychecks, right? Yeah, exactly. And there's a formula for how those premiums are calculated. It's based on the average salary level across Canada. Uh, and because of COVID, what actually happened was a lot of the lower wage jobs disappeared completely. And what that led to was actually an increase in the average salary for people who still had their jobs. And that means that this year, CPP premiums are jumping even higher than usual. In fact, as much as 9%. You know, if there's any politicians listening out here, um, you know, the first rule of government should be first do no harm, right? And, and, and providing payroll tax relief would be one of the fastest ways for governments to actually provide some extra relief for businesses and workers right now. I mean, just let us keep more of our own money. You know, I know that sounds uh, almost too simple, but come on, folks. Anyway, speaking of tax hikes, there's one happening in Alberta that really grinds my gears and that really deserves special mention, and it's called bracket creep. And, you know, it even sounds awful, like it's creeping on you. And, well, it is awful. <laughs> so, Aaron, break that down for us. Yeah, nobody likes a creepy tax. And this one, it's, it's, it's sneaky in that it happens when tax brackets uh, aren't indexed or moved uh, with inflation. So you get, say, for example, a 1% pay raise to keep pace with inflation, but suddenly you're in a higher tax bracket and now you're paying a higher marginal income tax rate. Uh, and bracket creep also allows inflation to erode the tax portion of your income. And what may, perhaps what makes this particularly vexing is it's happening in Alberta. Uh, and Premier Kenning is, of course, a former head of the Taxpayers Federation. And he used to, to, he used to bash bracket creep as, and these are his own words, a quote, hidden and regressive tax grab. And now he's premier and, it, and it's happening anyway. So, you know, Saskatchewan actually went the other way this year. They joined most of the other provinces, got rid of bracket creep, uh, which means now as of 2021, there's only three provinces left that don't index their tax brackets at all. Uh, Nova Scotia, PEI, and Alberta. Yeah, you know, that just goes to show you that our supporters are going to hold you accountable no matter which organization you used to work for. And that's exactly what we're doing with Premier Kenny. You know, we're, we're holding him accountable here and we're telling him that, you know, he's got to go ahead and scrap his bracket creep income tax hike. Well, you know, it's bad enough that we've got some politicians here that are raising our taxes during a pandemic and economic downturn. But what if they're not even being transparent with their actions? Well, we're going to check in with our Quebec director, Renaud Broussard, on the transparency issue next. This is Deep Dive, the part of the show where we dive into important issues that Canadian taxpayers need to know about. I'm Jasmine Moulton, and I'll be speaking with our Quebec director, Renaud Broussard, about yet another one of Justin Trudeau's broken promises. Renaud, what do you have for us today? Well, Jasmine, do you remember when Justin Trudeau told us that Canadians deserve the most transparent and open government in the world back in 2015? Well, he seems to have changed his tune now. Listen to what he told the Canadian press last month in a year-end interview. But as we know, the functioning of government requires a combination of openness and accountability and transparency. Uh, and uh, an ability to grapple with very difficult questions in a fulsome way. And that's where cabinet confidences, for example, are extremely important. 
That's incredible. Now, if you remove all the flowery language, what he's basically saying here is that his government needs to find the right balance between being transparent and covering its metaphorical backside. Yep, that's exactly what it is. So we know Trudeau changed his tune on openness and transparency, but how open is our government at the moment? Surely a country like Canada has a good ranking? Well, I'm glad you asked. And now we're not doing too well. So every year, the Halifax-based Centre for Law and Democracy teams up with a European think tank uh, named Access Info to analyze just how good access to information laws are around the world. Now, to be clear, what they're analyzing are how good the laws are, not how well they're being enforced, but how good the laws are, how transparent they are. And our government seems to think that they do a good enough job because it has been giving funding to the Centre for Law and Democracy for the last couple of years. So in its latest ranking, out of 128 countries that have access to information laws, Canada's Access to Information Act ranked 50th. But here's where it gets worst, because some of the countries that are ahead of us that are supposedly more transparent than us are not places that we'd really associate with transparency. Like, take Russia. Russia is ranked 43rd on that ranking. Pakistan is ranked 32nd. Even South Sudan, that was recently in the midst of a civil war, ranks 12th. And to be clear, now this report doesn't look at whether or not the laws are properly enforced and applied uh, in those countries, but rather how transparency laws are and how, um, how few legal restrictions there are to accessing government information. You know, Renaud, it doesn't feel particularly good to be ranking behind Russia. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> and to know that access to information laws add so many more legal hurdles on citizens trying to access government information in Canada than Russia, well, that's pretty damning. So we didn't get the most transparent and open government in the world that Trudeau had promised us, but things are getting better at least. Is the government getting more transparent, hopefully? So there, there's actually, this is a twofold answer. Is our government getting more transparent? Yes. Uh, since, since the rankings were first compiled in 2011, the overall score we got got a little bit better. But while we've been making a few tweaks here and there to make it better, the rest of the world has made significant advances towards transparency. So over that same amount of time, uh, we went down a couple of spots. We ranked 41st in the world in 2011 and are now 50th today. So in short, yes, we're doing slightly better. But the rest of the world is doing so much better that it hasn't made any significant change. Well, it's kind of infuriating when you think about it. So I'm not sure a lot of our listeners have used the access to information process on a regular basis, but it's really important because this is how we find out all of the waste stories that the governments, uh, you know, that we use to hold governments to account. So when we can't access government information, it becomes that much harder to point to specific savings and reforms that would help save taxpayers money, or even to remove bureaucrats and politicians with dubious morals. So we know the situation's pretty bad, but what steps, Renault, can we take to fix it? Well, that's an excellent question. And there are quite a few common sense solutions that can be taken to make our country more transparent. Take the vague definition of cabinet confidence, for instance. As it stands right now, practically any document that has ever been in front of a minister's eyes at some point can be qualified as cabinet confidence, meaning it cannot be disclosed for 20 years. Now, that's a situation that previous access to information commissioner, Suzanne Legault, 
from troubling. She actually told members of parliament in 2016 that this definition should be changed so that backgrounders and problem, and, uh, problem analysis documents, we're talking here about documents that are purely laying out the facts, should be exempt from the definition of cabinet confidence. Unfortunately, that has yet to be, uh, to be implemented. Well, that would be a good step forward for sure. After all, having access to the facts and information is one of those things that can help Canadians better understand the process that's led to a minister's decision and either agree with it or propose a better solution. Surely, though, giving us the opportunity to understand their decision-making process is something politicians of all stripes should be able to agree on. So, Renal, what are some other common sense reforms that you think could help? Well, there's this one that I particularly like uh, from the Center for Land Democracy. So what it suggested was making all the different, all the different exemptions, all different things that government says, no, you cannot access this, no, you cannot access that. So making them subject to a mechanism that could override those exemptions if it's proven that knowing that information would be in the public's interest. As it stands, only a handful of exemptions uh, to our right to access are subject to such a mechanism. So what this means is that even as we speak, there's information that would benefit Canadians greatly if it was made publicly available, but that's being withheld in the halls of government because of some arcane bureaucratic requirement. Well, that would certainly be a welcome change. Canadians' interests should always be the top concern. And a lot of our listeners are probably not familiar with the process, uh, how infuriating it can be, and the kind of results that it can lead to. Now, I know that you, over your course of time here with the CTF, you've sent thousands of FOIs. So you got to give it to us. What's your best FOI story? (laughs) Well, this is one that uh, pretty much spanned a significant part of my time with CTF. Uh, A lot of our listeners might not know this, but uh, I started out as an intern back in 2015. Uh, And at the time, I sent an access to information request uh, to the federal government asking for some of the the change orders they made to the parliamentary renovation process, because we're talking about a multi-billion dollar project, and whenever the government makes some changes to some infrastructure projects, costs tend to balloon up. So normally, for an access to information request, the deadline for the government to respond is 30 days but it can ask for some extensions. And at the time I got some, uh, they asked for a 240 day only extension, which I thought was absolutely ludicrous. Like 240 days is a lot of time. Uh, But it turns out I should have been happy with that 240 days. So when I said that access to information request back in 2015, Stephen Harper was still prime minister. When I got a response back from that request, it was in 2019, just as uh, Justin Trudeau was asking Canadians for a second mandate. It took over. Four, it took about four years to be able to get that response. It's hard to uh, know how to vote when you have to wait four years for some information. <laughs> That's crazy. Well, one of my best stories, um, and now I haven't been around at the CTF quite as long as you, but I filed a lot of FOIs as well. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, it's hard to define, you know, a best or worst story because maybe the best FOI story is when you get the worst response, but. <laughs> One of the times that really stands out in my mind was back in the beautiful, blissful days before anyone had heard of COVID-19, Ontario teachers unions were uh, 
striking, having, you know, one day walkouts where they were demanding a pay raise. And I thought that there was a piece of information really missing in the public discourse, which was, okay, if you're asking for a raise, how much money do you make now? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that really just nobody knew. I mean, do teachers make 60000 Do they make 100000 Who knows? So I filed a freedom of information request to the Ministry of Education in Ontario. And what I got back uh, really surprised me. So the average secondary school teacher, and this is not the top of their pay grade, uh, this is just the average Ontario secondary school teacher in public schools, earns a total of over $114,000 per year. Now that figure includes their salary, uh, taxpayer-funded pension contributions and benefits, uh, but $114,000 for the average secondary school teacher uh, seemed like a lot of money. And uh, maybe that doesn't change your opinion on the matter. Maybe it does. But I think at the end of the day, it was really important to have that information out there, uh, certainly to help balance or counter some of the the union's uh, rhetoric. So that was one really telling FOI that stood out in my memory. And and it's true. It's a really good one. I think you put it perfectly when you said a good FOI story is also a horrible FOI story because of all of the information that you managed to find. Like knowing that Ontario teachers are paid 114,000 bucks a year on average, and they're still not happy with it is absolutely infuriating. But getting that kind of information enabled you to uh, change the public narrative or make sure that Ontarians were better informed about the issue before making their minds about it. So it's, it's an absolutely incredible story. And it shows just what freedom of information can do. Getting access to those documents, getting access to that data, it helps us further our cause. It helps us uh, find the data we need to lead our, to lead our fights and to ensure that taxpayers' money is better spent in the future. Absolutely. Well, Renaud, thank you for bringing this issue to our attention today. Like you say, there's nothing more important than uh, information to really hold our government to account. So if our listeners want to know any more about this, uh, go to the uh, show notes and uh, you can find more information there in the links. It's time for Waste Watch. This is when we make fun of the dumb things that governments are wasting your money on. And we have got a doozy today. Jasmine Moulton is here. She's, of course, our Ontario director with the Taxpayers Federation. She's got this crazy story about Ontario doctors who got fired for traveling south. And they're going to get seven-figure severance payouts paid for, of course, by taxpayers. Jasmine, what is going on out there? Well, Chris, there are two instances here that we know about, at least so far. In the first case, Dr. Tom Stewart, the former president and CEO of St. Joseph's Health System in Hamilton, Ontario, he was recently fired by the board of directors after he took a trip to the Dominican Republic over the holidays. Now, he's eligible for a severance worth up to two years salary because the board of directors decided to fire him without cause. Now, since he earns over $600,000 per year, that means that his severance could leave taxpayers on the hook for over a million dollars. Okay, just a minute, just a minute. $600,000 a year? Yeah. That's not a that's not a typo there. That's uh, okay. not a mistake. Okay. 
Yeah. So he could leave uh, taxpayers on the hook for over a million dollars over the course of uh, his payout. And in the second case, Dr. Paul Woods, who was the former CEO of the London Health Sciences Centre in Ontario, he was fired by his board of directors for taking five personal trips to the United States to visit family since the pandemic began last March. But the severance payout uh, amount in his case, at least, is unclear because the board hasn't indicated whether or not he was fired with cause. Okay, but why is there any confusion in either of these cases uh, when you lay it out that way? Employees of these health groups, doctors, are going against the provincial stay-at-home health directives when they themselves didn't abide by those provincial stay-at-home orders. So isn't that sufficient grounds to be fired with cause in both cases? You'd think that. And I think that that's the logical conclusion that most people would draw. But here's the catch. In at least one of those cases, the one from Hamilton, we now know that the board of directors approved the vacation. So it's kind of hard to fire someone with cause when you approve the thing that got them fired in the first place. (laughs) Okay, that's pretty mind boggling. How can a board that is provincially managed and funded by taxpayers approve out of country vacations while that same province is yelling at everybody to stay at home because we're all in this together. How do we square that circle? Well, you bring up a great point, Chris, and that's that there's no accountability here whatsoever. This board made a stupid mistake, yet of course, taxpayers are the ones who have to pick up the pieces and, and pay for everything. So really, just to recap for our listeners, we have two problems with this whole situation. The first is that the board is clearly incompetent. They need to be fired for a mistake that costs taxpayers over a million bucks, especially at a time when neither taxpayers nor the healthcare system can afford that kind of waste. But secondly, government employees shouldn't have seven-figure severances to begin with. Yeah, like the bumper sticker, you know, (laughs) like that should be obvious here. But it's like the bumper sticker that says something along the lines of (laughs) crap happens, because crap like this happens all the time in government and taxpayers can't afford to keep paying for this sort of incompetence. No, we're tired of walking around with the scoop. Okay, so to recap, first traveling doctor, the one from Hamilton, does qualify for a seven-figure severance funded by taxpayers, but whether the second doctor will get a payout, a severance, is still up in the air? Exactly. So in the London case, the second case there, the board hasn't commented publicly on whether or not he was fired with cause. Uh, And that, of course, will determine whether or not he's eligible for the severance payout. But that board of directors has been sending some kind of weird, contradictory messages since all of this went down. So on Friday, after the news broke about his travel, the board said they were aware of his travel and supported his continued leadership. Then by Monday, the board had done a complete about face and they said they didn't know about or approve of his travel. So the mixed messages alone here really show how incompetent this board is. Now, Chris, if I was a betting woman, I guess this case is going to result in some hefty costs for taxpayers, especially now because Dr. Woods is now suing the London Health Sciences Center for $2.5 million for wrongful dismissal. Oh boy, what a train wreck. This just keeps getting better and better and taxpayers are going to have to unfortunately pay for it. Um, Okay, but Jasmine, some of our listeners, they might be divided on the question of travel in and of itself. Some listeners might agree that we all need to stay home to curb the spread of COVID-19. We're all in this together, etc. And others might argue that the government has no right to dictate where we can and can't go and what we can and can't do. 
including travel. So what do you say to those listeners who think that these doctors should have been able to travel and did nothing wrong? Well, the issue here is about hypocrisy. The Hamilton doctor was actually on a COVID-19 advisory panel that told the province, uh, advised the province on its stay-at-home orders. So (laughs) while taxpayers and businesses are making sacrifices under these orders, this doctor was jet-setting to the Dominican over the holidays, and now he gets to enjoy a $1 million taxpayer-funded severance. If travel is safe, then he shouldn't have advised the premier to issue a stay-at-home order. If it's not safe, then he shouldn't have traveled. Look, I'm not an expert, so I'm not going to comment on what public health advice policy should be. But what I do know is that by advising the province to issue a stay-at-home order while traveling, that looks really hypocritical. Worse, these actions brought disrepute on the employer, for which one could have been fired with cause. Okay, this is just a mess now, and tax are going to be left picking up the pieces and paying the bill again and at a time when most of us can least afford it. So many Canadians are within $200 of not being able to pay all of their monthly bills. But in the London case, it seems questionable at the very least that this doctor would have been able to travel to the United States during the pandemic without the approval or knowledge of the board. How are they going to fire him with cause when they could have very likely known about his travel during this time? That's a great question, Chris, one that I'm sure will come out as things go to court. But this just sounds like already a really costly lose-lose situation, however it ends up for taxpayers. And ultimately, these examples just make it really clear that we're not all in this together, as the politicians love to remind us. Well, that's a wrap for the podcast this week. We'd like to thank James Wood for his hard work in putting this together. Hey, and thank you out there, listeners, for uh, for listening to the podcast and con- continuing to support the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. But hey, do us one more favor, will you? Please like, share, and subscribe to our podcast and let your friends and family know that we're doing this. Let's get more taxpayers into the fight. Hi, I'm Scott Hennig, president of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. If you've got another minute, I'd like to ask you to think about the one person you know that would really enjoy listening to this podcast. Do us a favor and do them a favor and send them a quick note to let them know about it. At the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, we believe there is power in numbers. That's why we've worked so hard to build an army of taxpayers who are ready to push back. And we did it because people like you shared our work with that one person that they knew would really appreciate taking part. Thanks for listening, and thanks for doing your part to make Canada a better place.